Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Um, if you have a Bible, if you turn your Bible to Mark chapter 12, if you don't have one, you can just uh, listen along. If you don't have one at home, uh, feel free to grab a, a Bible. We'd love to give you one um, in that basket over there. Also, if you're a visitor, this is your first time here, we have some gift baskets over there, uh, gift bags. So uh, feel free to grab one of those on the way out. Um, love for you to have that. So this morning, I'd like to look with you for just a couple minutes at Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself, it's much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Well, last weekend I was preaching at a church in Tylertown, Mississippi, and uh, my wife Stephanie and I were staying with the pastor at his house. And the pastor's son is basically like a genius, and he had all these Rubik's Cubes. He had four different kinds of Rubik's Cubes. He had like a 2 by 2 a 3 by 3 a 4 by 4 and a, like a mini one. And he could solve these Rubik's Cubes in any, anywhere between a minute and a minute and a half or for the standard one. So I see this 13-year-old kid, and he just is just moving his hands, and he can solve it in just over a minute. And I think to myself, I should be able to do this. Now, if you've ever tried to do a Rubik's Cube, it's for people who tend to be a little bit obsessive-compulsive, it's like torture. And so I'm working on this, and after a while, I just wanted to gouge my eyes out. It was terrible. And so I'm looking online for solutions to try to figure this out, and and it's just driving me crazy that I can't get these colors lined up. And then I ask his son, the pastor's son, about it. I'm like, so what do I do? And he's just like, oh, just like this. And... So I asked some more specific questions. He's like, well, you solve this layer, you solve this layer, then one of two things could happen, and then you put this logarithm in, and then after that, one of two things can happen, then you put this logarithm in, and here it is, you can solve it. Like, wasn't following. You see, he had so much information, he knew so much, that he didn't know how to explain it to somebody who knew nothing about Rubik's Cube. I remember growing up in, in school, in high school, college, seminary, I remember teachers that were kind of like that. You talk to them for just a couple minutes and you realize that they are on another planet. They're just brilliant. Then you get to their class and it's like, wah-wah, wah-wah, wah-wah. You have no idea what they're talking about. And you're sure that it's great, interesting stuff, but you have no idea what they're talking about because they have so much information, but they don't know how to communicate it. In a similar way, the scribes and religious leaders in Jesus' day had a lot of information that they were dealing with. 
In the Old Testament, there were 613 different commands. And of these commands, the rabbis would debate which of these commands were most important. They would make some commands, they would call them heavy commands. And they were the ones that were more difficult and more important. But other commands, they would say, would be light commands. They weren't as important. And so the scribe comes to Jesus and he asks them a very valid question. He asks them, which of the commandments is the most important of all? And now when he is asking that question, he's not asking which among all these is one that's good to do. He's kind of saying, which is the foundation? Which commandment is kind of the the foundation on which all the other commands are built? Because they'd had so much information that they had to sort through. In our day, similarly, we have a lot of information that we deal with. According to a recent book, right now in America, there are 1,780 commercial television stations, 15,503 broadcast radio stations, 1,331 newspapers, 2 million billboards, 5,821 movie theaters, 7 billion worldwide cell phone subscriptions comprising 4.77 billion mobile users, and 1 trillion... 276,011,353 billion websites. And he notes that the information that he provided became absolute, obsolete as soon as he finished writing it because there was more added and more added. E- even the Bible that we have has 66 books, over 31,000 verses. There are thousands of Christian books that are written each year. There's hundreds of different radio stations and television stations. There's a lot of information out there. And what this passage is going to do is it's going to help us weed through that information. As he, Jesus interacts with the scribe, it's, we're going to kind of get to the root of what's the most important things we need to know about God. So there's three things that I see in this passage that we need to know about God. And I would say the most important things that we need to know about God. The first thing that Jesus says is that there's one God. Each morning and each evening, the ancient Jews would quote from what was called the Shema, which in Hebrew means hear. And they would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That there's one God. Now it was important that they would believe that because the nations that were around Israel traditionally believed in multitudes of gods. The ancient Egyptians believed in a number of gods. The Canaanites believed in many different gods. The Greeks had uh, multitudes of gods for all different things. They had Zeus, the god of the sky. Hera, the goddess of marriage. Demeter, the goddess of agriculture. Ares, the goddess of war. Hecate, the goddess of magic. And that's just naming a couple of the more important ones. But God is clear that there's one God. That He's always existed from eternity past and that there is no other. And He's always existed in a trinity, a triunity of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and one God. Isaiah 45, 5-6 says this, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides Me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know Me, that people may know that from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none beside Me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Likewise, Isaiah 44, 6-8 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides Me, there is no God. Who is like Me? Let Him proclaim it. 
Let him declare and set it before me, since I have appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. So the first thing, the most important thing we need to know about God is that there is one God, that the maker of the heavens and the earth, that he's infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, and infinitely big. In his book on prayer, Philip Yancey helps us kind of just get a glimpse of how big our God is. He says, if the Milky Way galaxy were the size of the entire continent of North America, our solar system would fit in the size of a coffee cup. He says, even now, two Voyager spacecraft are hurtling towards the edge of the solar system at a rate of 100,000 miles per hour. For almost three decades, they've been speeding away from the Earth, approaching a distance of 9 billion miles. When engineers beam a command to the spaceship at the speed of light, which is very fast, it takes 13 hours to arrive. Yet this vast neighborhood of our sun, in truth the size of a coffee cup, fits along with 700 billion other stars and their minions in the Milky Way, one of perhaps 100 billion such galaxies in the universe. To send a light speed message to the edge of the universe would take 15 billion years. And so when we're talking about God, we're talking about the God who made all of that, who is infinitely big, infinitely powerful, who is greater than we could ever imagine. And if, the, if, the, if our God is that big, it means that He can handle the problems that we face in our life, that there's nothing in this life that we can face that's too big for Him. And because of that, it also means that we owe Him our praise and honor and worship because of the greatness of who He is. So that's the first thing we need to know about God, that there's one God. The second thing Jesus tells us is that God calls us to love Him with all that we are and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus says the two greatest commandments, they're pretty simple. They go together. Love God, love people. Most important commandments. But in Israel, these things probably during the time of Jesus, he was probably the first time person to put these two things together. And Israel and mankind in general has a tendency to kind of mess these things up, even though they seem simple. Because it's often easier to give God something than to give God everything. I mean, God wants everything and He demands everything, but it's easier to give Him something than to give Him everything. See, the ancient Jews got that wrong. See, what they would do is they would be involved in performing sacrifices. They would keep the letter of the law. They would engage in festivals. And they thought, because we're doing that, God will be pleased with us. Because we're doing these things, God will be happy and we'll be able to appease them. The Pharisees did the same thing. They did the outward rituals, the outward spiritual things, but they neglected the most important things. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus speaks against the Pharisees and says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus tells the Pharisees, You give money to the temple, but you don't love me. You give money and tithe to the temple, but you don't care for the poor. You treat them poorly. You treat your neighbor unjustly. And that's why God said through the prophet Amos to the Israelites, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. And even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
and the peace offerings your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. See, God doesn't want us to give Him something. He wants us to give Him everything. We were created to live in perfect relationship with Him and perfect relationship with other human beings. And that's why how we find fulfillment. First, in our relationship with God. Second, in relationship with those around us. And that's how God wired us. And that's why God demands that we love Him with all that we are because He knows that that's when we'll find our true joy, when we'll find our true purpose in a relationship with Him. And so that's our calling. And that's what Jesus says is the most important thing, to love God and love people. But it's so much easier to give Him something than everything. And in the last 2,000 plus years, I don't think that's changed a whole lot. Many people throughout our country do the same thing every week. They come to church and they think to themselves, well, I, I came to church, that's something that God wants me to do, and now He'll be happy with me because I came and I gave something to Him. Or we give to the, someone who's struggling, who's poor, or we give uh, in the offering, and we think to ourselves, well, I've given something to God, surely He'll be happy with me. Or maybe we were even in the church and we're serving in the church, and we think because of my service to God, He'll be pleased with me. But when we do that, we miss the point. Because God isn't impressed with our attendance at church. I mean, we don't come to church to impress God. We come to church because we need Him. We need to meet with Him. We don't give to God because God is somehow impressed with our giving as if He needs our money. We give because of what He's given to us. We don't serve because... to give something to God, we serve because God has given everything to us. He wants our hearts. He doesn't want just something from us. You know, and you think about that, and imagine if you treated, if we treated our other relationships like we treat our relationship with God sometimes. Imagine if it was my anniversary and I called up my wife and I said to her, um, I know it's our anniversary, but I'm not going to be able to come home um, me and the guys are going out fishing tonight. Uh, but I tell you what, um, I cleaned the house for you. I left flowers on the table. And I left you a gift certificate so you could go out to eat and enjoy yourself. I don't think that would fly very well. Because I'm giving something, but I'm not giving her my heart. Same thing is true with God. He's not looking for us to give Him something. He doesn't need our stuff. But He wants our hearts. He wants a relationship with us. And we were created for that kind of relationship. So the first thing that Jesus tells us is most important, that there's one God, that there's no other. He can handle anything we face in our lives. Second, that God calls us to love Him with all that we are and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And then the third thing that we need to know about God is that we can't do any of it without Jesus. We know there's one God. We know that God calls us to love Him, to love our neighbor, but... Humanity in general has had a real problem doing that. I mean, you think of ancient Israel. And you think about God's people who were chosen by God. And they had a tendency to continually go after and serve other gods. Again and again, the whole Old Testament is where for a time the Israelites would serve the true God and then they would go into idolatry. And then they would be called back by the prophets and then they would go back to idolatry once again. And so again and again they turned to idolatry. And in our day... 
We don't serve gods of wood and stone, but sometimes we serve other gods. We serve like the God of pleasure, the God of success, the God of money, or the God of sex. In addition, not only do we have a hard time loving God, but we also have a hard time loving our neighbor. In the recorded history of the world, about 3,400 years that we have technically of recorded history, only 8% of that time the world has been at peace. 8% in 3,400 years. In our country, we are increasingly facing strife where we have difficulty agreeing basically on anything. On average, in our country, nearly every hour or every minute, 20 people are physically abused by an intimate partner. About 40 to 50% of marriages end in divorce. And that's not to say of all the regular interpersonal struggles that we have. So we can agree that there's one God. We can agree that He calls us to love Him. But how do we do that? I think the Scriptures teach us that we can't. That it's impossible. The reason that it's impossible without Jesus is because it's really hard to make yourself fall in love with someone. Now, I'll do some things for my wife. Like I'll take her to work a lot of times, drive her to work. I'll pick up things from the store when we need something. And I don't mind doing those things because I love her. But imagine if I had to do those same things for someone that I didn't love. For a time, it might be okay. But after a while, it would get burdensome. I would think to myself, well, I'm taking all this time driving this person around. I could be doing so many other different things. Or I would think about the gas that I was spending to drive this person around. But I don't think about those things when it comes to my wife. It's just natural for me to do those things. And the same thing is true for our relationship with God. If we don't really love Him, if we don't really have a relationship with Him, trying to serve Him and give Him our honor will seem a lot like drudgery. We can try, but it's going to be painful. Inevitably, we're going to give up. Because it's really hard to give God everything if we don't really love Him. But when we get a glimpse of what God has done for us in Jesus, when we get a glimpse of the love that God has for us in sending His Son, it changes everything for us. When we get a glimpse of Jesus, it causes us to fall in love with God. So much so that Nothing seems too big to give to Him. That yeah, we give Him our everything. Not in a kind of way that we're just kind of begrudgingly serving God, because, but because we want to give Him everything because He's given everything to us. You see, Jesus came to the earth and He died on the cross for our sin because we failed to love God as we should, failed to love our neighbors as we should. And we deserve God's judgment to be separated from Him. But He sent His Son Jesus who lived a sinless life and died on the cross for our sins so that we might have life and have a relationship with Him. There's an old story about a particular tribe uh, from Russia. And uh, the tribes during that time period maintained their control of land because of of the leadership of the chiefs. 
In other words, the chiefs who were exceptionally wise and exceptionally strong would be able to maintain control of a larger piece of land. And there was this one particular tribe, and they had this chief that was very wise and very strong and very powerful. And this tribe was uh, growing, and it was being, it was successful, and the commerce was just uh, just burgeoning. But then something happened that was disturbing. Someone in the tribe started stealing. The chief knew that this couldn't fly. He was committed to fairness, to equity. And so when this was reported to him, he recorded, he, he sent out a proclamation that if the thief was caught, he would get ten lashes. But still, the stealing continued. So then he upped it to twenty lashes, but still it continued. He upped it to thirty lashes, but still it continued. Finally, he raised it to forty lashes. Forty lashes would have been so severe that Nearly, uh, near, nobody could really survive or hardly anyone could survive except maybe the chief because he was so strong or somebody very strong. Finally, after it was raised to 40, the thief was caught. But to the horror of everyone in the tribe, it was the chief's own mother. The tribe was in shock. What was this leader going to do? Was he going to show love to his mother or was he going to go through with his justice? Was he going to do what he said he was going to do to the thief? Great arguments arose on each side. Even some tribal members were making wagers about what the chief would do. Then finally the day of judgment came. And all the tribe went to the center of the city and there was a big giant post there. And soon... The chief's frail little mother was brought in between two towering warriors. They tied her to the post, and the crowd was murmuring about what was going to happen. The tribal whipmaster entered into the scene. A huge, powerful man with bulging muscles, a great leather whip in his hand, and he approached the small little lady. Everyone sat there, silent. Staring at the scene and staring, and then darting from the scene to the chief to see what the chief was going to do. But he sat there without moving. The whipmaster took his stance. His big arm cracked the whip in the air as he prepared to bring the first lash upon her. But right before that, the chief raises his hand. So the people think his love is going to win. He's going to let his mother go free. But then what happens is the chief comes down from his great throne. He walks over, he takes his shirt off, and he puts his arms around his mother. He then commanded the whipmaster, proceed with the punishment. And he was beaten for the sins of his mother. That's what a, a picture of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. He took our punishment. He died in our place so that we might be forgiven, so that we might experience life with Him. And so the three most important things we need to know about God, there's one God. He calls us to love Him with all that we are, to love our neighbor as ourselves. But we can't do that without Jesus. And we get to the end of the story, the passage that we looked at today, and we see that Jesus tells the scribe, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. 
He says, you're not far. You agree with what is written. You agree with what I said. You're not far from the kingdom of heaven. But we don't know exactly what became of this man. We don't know if he went on his merry way or if he chose to follow after Jesus. See, the thing is, knowing about Jesus is not enough. Knowing what he requires is not enough. We can know the most important things that we need to know about God, but if we're not in love with God, if we haven't experienced God's grace in Jesus, it doesn't mean anything. John 3.36 says, He that hath the Son has life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. See, we can't do it without Jesus. We can't live a life that's honoring to God. We can't have a relationship with God even. But Jesus came to the earth and He died on the cross so that we would have life. So that we could have a relationship with God. And the truth is, when we turn from the direction we're going and invite Him to come into our lives, He comes into our life, and it doesn't matter what we've done before, He forgives us. It doesn't matter what our past is. It doesn't matter what our deficiencies are. He forgives us and He makes us new. And when He does that, He, come, he sends His Spirit inside of us who changes us and gives us the desire to love God with all of our hearts. To give Him all that we are. Not begrudgingly, but because of what He's done for us. And when His Spirit comes and lives inside of us, not only do we love God, but we love people. We show grace to people. We forgive those around us because we've been forgiven. Because Christ has shown us grace. If you're here today, you've never entered into a relationship with Christ. Maybe you've come to church and you've tried to give God something. And you feel like that's enough. God's not interested in you giving Him something. He wants you. He wants to know you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to spend forever with Him. In a few minutes, I'm going to say a prayer. And if you like to enter into a relationship with Christ, I'd invite you to repeat the words to the prayer after me. It's not a magic prayer, but it's an expression of your heart to God where you invite Him into your life by faith, trusting in what He's done for you and choosing to follow after Him. And if you do that in just a few minutes, I'd encourage you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything like that, but if you did that and you're serious about that, tell somebody... Maybe it's somebody who brought you today, a friend from the church. Maybe it's myself. I'd love to talk with you about that. Or Patrick or uh, Pastor Phil. We'd love to talk to you more about that. Give, some, give you some resources to help you in your journey of faith. If you're here and you're a believer in Jesus, let's never forget the sacrifice that Christ made for us. Let's never try to give Him something as if he needs us. But let's look to the cross. Look to the sacrifice and the reckless love that He poured out for us. And as we look to that, how could we not give Him everything that we are? How could we not love our neighbor? Let's pray. If you're here today and you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus, I just encourage you to pray a prayer like this in your heart. Say, God, I know that I'm a sinner I've known that I've failed to love you. I've known that I've failed to love my neighbor. But I believe that you died for me. I believe that you left your throne in heaven to come down and take the blows for me. And because of that, I believe that I can have a relationship with you. 
God, I pray that You'd come into my life today. Change me. Make me new. Give me a new purpose, a new hope. Dear God, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You that while we were yet sinners, You came to die for us, even when we didn't deserve it. You came and gave everything for us. Lord, for those of us who are believers today, Lord, I pray that we would never move on from the cross, the gospel, the good news of what you've done for us. God, I pray that that would transform our hearts from day to day as we're dealing with the struggles that we face in our life, that we would always remember the love that you have for us and that it would change our perspective. Lord, for anybody here who prayed to receive you, Lord, I just pray that you'd put people around them that would encourage them. God, I pray that you'd give them the courage to reach out, tell someone about it. To not just make it a one-time little prayer, but to make it a true change of heart, change of life. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day you've given us, for clearing out the rain for us to come and worship you. We're so grateful for all that you do for us. And we look forward to all that you're going to do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.